but for those of you that traded good gifts yesterday, uh, for those of you that opened gifts, traded gifts yesterday, um, I hope that you enjoyed that time together because a study put out in 2018 tells us that uh, those of us that receive gifts, over half of us will forget what we received of those gifts by this time next year. More than half of us will forget what we even got a year from now. Um, so for those of you that are still have gift giving in front of you and you're looking for the perfect gift, hopefully that encourages you. Uh, so more than half of people will forget the gifts that they opened yesterday by this time next year. And if that's not bad enough, it gets worse. One in six gifts will never be touched or used again after January the 1st. And none of those are, or actually I should say, uh, that is especially true uh, of those of you that either gave or receive gift cards. So according to one news organization, $3 billion, with a B, $3 billion worth of gift cards go unused every year. <laughs> so if that is an evidence of our privileged state, I don't know what is. But it's interesting, isn't it? that we could so easily forget gifts that were given to us. And yet, are we really surprised? I mean, how many of us have gone to the store to purchase something only to get back home and realize we had one or two of those things already? Or think about those of us that maybe can, for those of us that have a car, do you remember the time when you were researching that car, you were excited about that car, you bought that car, and you are excited about driving the car, and here it is, a matter of months or maybe a couple years later, and you're already thinking about getting a new car. We can so easily forget good gifts. And that's the point. The point is, as a people, we are regularly neglectful of the good gifts that we are given. How many times do we have to be told to be thankful for our moms or our dads or our brothers or our sisters, our homes, our health, our food? Somehow, even good things can become so familiar to us that we lose our appreciation for them. Perhaps this is why the Lord commands us to be thankful. Perhaps this is why the Lord uh, tells us to not forsake the gathering of the church, as some are in the habit of doing. Perhaps this is why the Lord set up the Lord's Supper, to help us to remember the gospel. But because the Lord knew that even the gift of the gospel could grow stale in our hearts. We talked about this last week about how as teenagers age from their teens into their 20s, they progressively stop going to church. Uh, more than half of college students will renounce their faith, the faith that they had entering into it. And so if nothing else instructs us in the utter depravity of our own hearts, it has to be this, that the very thing that the angels long to look into, that all of creation is centered upon, the gospel, even that can become stale, or cold, or uninteresting to us, or boring. Well, you'll be glad to know that if that describes you, you're not the first community to experience that. It was happening to first century Hebrews who had trusted in Christ themselves. Even they, who lived so near the events of the gospel, grew neglectful of it. Again, we've been talking about this temptation to drift away to another covenant in Hebrews. We've seen that in Hebrews they've been tempted to kind of fall back into the old patterns, drifting back away from the gospel. But just take a look down there in chapter 2, verse 1, at the application to all of these verses that we've been meditating on. 
You'll notice the therefore in chapter 2, verse 1. He says all that he says, and then he says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Then he goes on in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Chapter 5, after rehearsing the new covenant accomplishments in Hebrews, the author goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Chapter 10, verse 32, he goes on to say, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And then he concludes, verses 34 and 35, Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. And so, friends, as I warned us last week to not pursue other covenants, lesser covenants, so the author is warning them. He's warning us this morning, don't drift back into lesser covenants. Hebrews is here to point them, to point us to the person, the work, and the eternal worth of Christ so that they, so that we would wake up from our slumbering, wake up from our drifting, so that we would not neglect such a great salvation, so that we would see and savor that Christ is better than anything and anyone else. Friends, as we even think about the close of this year, we are mindful of the absence of people who used to sit next to us in pews. We are finding even now studies are coming out that church attendance, for example, is not even close to the levels it was before the pandemic. And so let us not neglect such a great salvation by remembering the one of whom we worship, Jesus the Christ. And so this morning we will briefly consider the nature of Christ, the rule of Christ, and the character of Christ So that, as Hebrews teaches us, we may lay aside every sin that clings so closely to us and run with endurance the race that is is set before us. First point, the nature of Christ. Again, taking a look at Hebrews 7, chapter 1, verse 7. The nature of Christ, namely that Christ is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God. So just catching up uh, before we read the text there, just catching us from last week, we know looking back at verse 3, Christ, having made purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, his atonement, his work of atoning for sin is done, it's finished, he takes that forever throne, thus fulfilling the promise to David hundreds of years before, inaugurating the new covenant, the kingdom of God, thus fulfilling the promises of the old covenant. And the reason for all of this talk about angels is because the Jews had become to believe that the angels mediated or oversaw an old covenant, uh, oversaw the old covenant. We saw that, if you remember, from Galatians 3.19, Acts 7.53. And so what the author is doing here is he's reorienting them to the better covenant. The one purchased at the cross, sealed in the resurrection, sustained by the prayers of Christ in the ascension. Thus, the conclusion there in verse 6 Let all God's angels worship him. Angels, in other words, are below Christ. They worship Christ because they know that Christ is God. Now look at verse 7. The author continues his point. Verse 7, by highlighting how angels are ministers or servants as opposed to Christ who's God. Take a look. Verse 7, of the angels, he says, 
he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's a quotation from Psalm 104. And then note the contrast, verse 8. But, there's the contrast, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So that right there is a quotation from Psalm 45. So the point is clear. Angels are winds and fire, created beings that are used to minister for God. And the Son, in contrast, is God. They are ministers of God and Christ is God. Now I want you to notice too the presence of the Trinity in the psalm. Did you pick up on that when I read it? It says there, but of the Son, he says, this is referencing what the Father is about to say, of the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever. The Father saying of the Son, O God, your throne is forever, referencing Christ. And so just as Jesus taught in John 14, 10 and 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Therefore, the Father can say of his eternally begotten Son that he is God because, of course, he is God. And so to deny the divinity of Christ is to deny the words of Christ himself as well as it is to deny, as we read here, the words of the Father himself, as well as it is, thirdly, to deny the the words of the apostles of Christ themselves. All agree. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the Word that bear testimony to them that Jesus Christ is God. That is his nature. He added human nature at Christmas, right, that Christmas season, but his, uh, his basic nature as divine, as holy, as uncreated, set apart from creation, pure and eternal, that was never lost on Christ. That was never lost. As we learn back in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so therefore, the author seems to be saying, why would you drift from Christ and two following angels or the covenant of that angels that is a lesser covenant? Why would you put your ultimate allegiance to following something or someone that is by nature lesser beneath the Christ that you trusted in, the Christ who is God? Why would you do that? I think that's a good question for us as well, isn't it? Good question for us to answer for ourselves. We may not be tempted to worship angels, but as I said last week, we're tempted to serve lesser covenants that are put in place by men who by nature are below Christ as God. And so I wonder this morning, who are the kind of angels that you're tempted to drift towards following? What other kind of covenants are they overseeing, mediating, that are attempting to allure you to follow them and get you into their narratives, ones that are below Christ? Last week, I mentioned the covenants that promise earthly glory, glory, that is those of power or comfort. Right, it's strangely easy to think that these earthly glories are more wealthy, more satisfying than the risen Christ because we can see them, right? We can touch those things, but we can't necessarily see and touch Christ who is God. So it's hard, right? It's difficult. Well, apparently the Hebrews had a similar temptation. Slide down to chapter 2, verse 8. You see there, now putting everything in subjection to him, Christ, he left nothing outside of his control. That's what it says there putting everything in subjection to him. He's God. He's overcome sin and death. He's ascended. Everything's in his control. All authority is his. But look what he says next. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And there's the struggle, right? That's why we're tempted to drift away because we can't see. It doesn't seem like everything is in in subjection to Christ. 
See, for those that take the time to study and not just repeat empty phrases, it's clear in the text that Christ is God and that he's ruling from heaven. But we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, do we? COVID's running loose. Unjust leaders abound. Racism, greed, death, all still here. And so we might be tempted to say, well, it doesn't seem like Christ is God ruling from heaven. And so we might be tempted to then say, well, then I'll rule my own little kingdom or I'll follow this other lesser kingdom. Because that I can have, I can see, I can touch, have more control over. But to take that line of thinking, friends, is to go right back to the Garden of Eden and eat the fig from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because in doing so, you make yourself to be like God. Don't serve anything other than God. Only he is worthy of your worship and your ultimate allegiance. And Christ is God. And so how is it you come to live in these realities? How is it you come to live in the fact that Christ is God and you're serving him and not be allured by these other lesser beings, as it were? How do we do that? Well, the answer of the author here in Hebrews seems to be by rehearsing these realities of Christ, but in particular by rehearsing the gospel to ourselves day after day. We can see that's exactly what the author does. Look again at Hebrews 2, verse 9, the very next verse when he says we don't yet see in subjection. Verse 8, look at his next answer, verse 9. But, we don't see it, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And so when we are tempted to to doubt the divine nature of Christ and in his place begin trying to rule our own lives or follow other lesser things. Listen, just remember Christmas. Remember Christmas. That when Christ humbled himself, became a man, making himself lower than the angels for a little while, but making purification for sins at the cross, defeating sin and death in the resurrection, in the gospel, rehearsing those realities. When you are tempted to follow lesser covenants to be a kind of king or queen of your own, Be reminded that only Jesus has defeated sin and death. No one else has. No one else has. So why would you serve anyone else with your ultimate allegiance? Right? Muhammad hasn't done this. Buddha hasn't done this. George Washington has not done this. Right? Bill Gates, Oprah Winfrey, Elon Musk. None of these guys, every single one of them either has died or will die. Because all of them are men wooing you in their own way to follow a lesser covenant. And by the millions, people are drifting towards them. But not us. Not us. Look to the risen and reigning Christ. His divinity is revealed in his finished redemption and his resurrection. Why would you want to follow anyone or anything else? And your ultimate allegiance. All else is sinking sand in comparison to him, the son of God. And so in order to keep from drifting, from neglecting, rehearse the divine nature of Christ as God and his finished work. And secondly, rehearse the rule of Christ. The divinity of Christ, the nature of Christ. Secondly, rehearse the rule of Christ. That's what we see there. Take a look at verse 8. It goes on to say, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, and there it is, your throne is forever and ever. This is the rule of Christ, namely that it is a forever reign. 
I'm not going to linger here too long. David Kim will come next week, finish out our time in Hebrews, and he'll take a look at verses 10 to 12 there where it talks about the rule of Christ remaining. But it's important to note that the claim of Christianity is that Christ Jesus not only rules as God, but because he is God, made atonement for sins, defeating in the resurrection, he is therefore a God that rules forever, forever. So therefore, to drift towards any other rule other than Christ with your ultimate allegiance is to drift towards some temporal throne that may flower for a day, but wither tomorrow. I can think of Peter and the apostles, John 6, when after Jesus gives some hard teaching and the throngs walk away from Jesus. And Jesus looks back at his disciples and say, you're going to leave me too? And Peter says back to them, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else would we go? You have the eternal rule, the eternal life. Why would we give ourselves to any other thrones that are like vapor? Why would we not give all of ourselves to all of Christ whose throne is forever? Unlike man's thrones, which are here today and gone tomorrow. I'll give you an example of this. Let's take, for instance, the ancient empire of Rome. At one point, they ruled the land from Western Europe to the Middle East. And they ruled most of this for hundreds of years. The city of Rome itself was so big and beautiful that people believed it to be the center of the world. Rome itself was called the eternal city. And the empire was regularly referred to as the glory of Rome. Nobody thought that it would ever be overcome. And so you can imagine how the world was changed when in 410 some barbarians come down and sack the city. No one thought Rome would be overcome. Certainly no one thought it would be overcome by the Goths. But no one that is except for heavenly minded Christians. They were the ones that knew that his Christ throne is the only one that never can be overcome. And so the pastor, theologian, author, Augustine, wrote a book to explain all this. What Christians believed about how the earthly thrones of the world fall away and the throne of Christ never goes away. He called that book the city of God. I started to read it a couple years ago and realized how long it was and I gave up. But it's from what I've, the little selections I've read, it's fantastic. What he does in the book is he compares the city of man to the city of God. How the city of man falls, the city of God keeps going. And in the book, he explains how Rome falls in comparison to the city of God. The city of man falls. And he says this. Augustine says, God does not raise up citadels of stone and marble for us. Outside of this world, he raises up citadels of the Holy Spirit for us. Citadels of love, which could never collapse which will forever stand in glory when this world has been reduced to ashes. Rome has collapsed and your hearts are outraged by this. Rome was built by men like yourself. Since when did you believe that men had the power to build things that are eternal? Your souls filled with the light of the Holy Spirit, speaking to Christians, your souls filled with the light of the Holy Spirit will not perish. Because, of course, they serve the God that never perishes, the throne that never perishes. And so, friends, serve your families, serve your country, serve your jobs. These are good things. But do so knowing that only the throne of Christ is forever and ever. 
Only his empire will remain when all else is said and done because no weapon formed against him shall stand. Drift towards Christ and his throne and be careful to not drift anywhere else because any other throne is temporary, no matter how strong you think it might be. It's not worth following and giving your ultimate allegiance to. Only the throne of Christ is eternal. And so we've considered that Christ is God. Anyone else? Uh, We might be tempted to serve as below him. We've considered, secondly, the rule of Christ, that his throne is eternal. So don't pursue any other thrones, as it were. And thirdly, let's now consider the character of Christ. Look at verses 8 and 9. goes on. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Again, this is in reference to Christ, a quotation from Psalm 45. Now, a scepter is a rod normally given to a king on a throne. You can imagine a king sitting there with a kind of rod. That's what it's talking about. And here we see, just as we would expect, that if Christ is God, then his rule must be righteous since God is righteous. Likewise, if his rule is righteous, he cannot tolerate wickedness. And, of course, Jesus doesn't. And I want you to notice the words in the text there. The character of Christ's rule is to love righteousness. Now, righteous is that which is right, that which is true in the eyes of God. And so the text says that he loves righteousness. He treasures it. He adores righteousness. He wants it. He has an affection for righteousness. And then it says that he hates wickedness. Wickedness is anything that opposes righteousness of God. Which means that Jesus not only didn't teach or practice wickedness, but he doesn't tolerate any kind of wickedness, doesn't approve of it in any way. Which is interesting, isn't it? At least in this city, I've seen that bumper sticker, love, right, doesn't hate. Well, apparently it does in the eyes of Christ. Since God is love and love is seen in Christ, he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. That's what it says clearly. That's what we see clearly modeled in Christ. Jesus loved that which was right, all that which was true, and hated that all that which was wrong. In fact, this is what makes, I think, Jesus' life, one of the things that makes Jesus' life so beautiful and ours so predictable. Right? No earthly power, you think about it, no earthly power could persuade him to stop teaching or living the way that he did because of his allegiance to the ultimacy of this love and this hate of righteousness and wickedness. People threatened Jesus, they cursed him, they mocked him, they socially excluded him in some ways, and yet his character went unmoved. He stayed the path. I go back to that quote from the author I I mentioned a few weeks ago. He said, quote, Jesus urged obedience to the Mosaic law while acquiring the reputation of a lawbreaker. He could be stabbed by sympathy for a stranger, yet turn on his best friend with flinty rebukes. Get behind me, Satan. He had uncompromising view on uh, rich men and loose women, and yet both types enjoyed his company. So Hebrews says later that he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Which means, guys, that at some level, at some level, Jesus must have been tempted to drift himself. He was tempted in some ways towards money, towards power, towards sex, towards ease, and yet he never sinned. Why? I think this passage would teach us because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
And why did he love righteousness and hate wickedness? Well, not only because he was God, but also he loved his heavenly father. Right? He, he taught so clearly that it was his food to do his father's will. He loved it because he loved his father. But it's also worth noting here, the passage doesn't just say that Jesus was righteous. The passage tells us that he had the perfect affection for righteousness and the perfect hatred for wickedness. In other words, Jesus, friends, was never ashamed of that which was right. Never. He wasn't ashamed of God's definition of marriage, for instance. He loved it. He wasn't embarrassed to tell people to repent of their sin because he, he knew that it would lead people to righteousness. He wasn't annoyed at the need to make disciples. He loved it. He wasn't bothered at, say, gender roles that gave that God gave in family and the church. He loves them. Uh, think about all the Ten Commandments. Every single one of them. He loved them. Taught them. And then likewise, on the other side, anyone or anything that wasn't righteous. He didn't just look the other way. It says that he hated wickedness. So he, for instance, hated sexual immorality. He hated lying. He hated greed. He detested anyone that didn't teach the Bible correctly. He hated pride. He hated arrogance. He hated our sin. So much so that he was willing to lay his life down for it. Take it up again. That's what Jesus is like. He is a God who rules forever by loving what is righteous and hating what is wicked. And because he did, he could be the perfect atoning sacrifice for sin, since none of us are those things perfectly. Only he was. Paul says it uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, 6 this way. He says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Isaiah, the prophet, says earlier in Isaiah 5, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Jesus never did that. Everything he said was evil, was evil. Everything he said was good, was good. Because he is the essence and source of that which is good. Therefore, he alone is the authority on that which is evil. Which is why, by the way, in Genesis 1, God said, say, this was good, and this was good, and it was good, and it was good, and this is very good, because he is the essence of goodness. Of course, he would then compare that that which is bad would be bad, because it's not good. He's the one that says it's good. And I think, guys, isn't it, that this aspect of Jesus right here really exposes the way that we can neglect a great salvation. I think this aspect here might expose the way we might be tempted to drift and neglect the gospel. See, I don't know about you guys, but I am tempted a hundred times a day to love wickedness. Aren't you? I am. I am tempted all the time to hate righteousness every day in my life. That's true of me. Into my shame, sometimes I give into this. Not only by approving that which is false, but more. Sometimes I can be so self-righteous that I can correctly see a sin in someone else, but think too highly of myself at the very same time. So I see it right, but then I act like a jerk inside. And the evil one knows how to prey upon our righteous or unrighteous evaluations and then lead us to think, that we are superior to anyone that doesn't think like us. Sometimes I think this is the entire reason why social media exists. <laughs> That's why Twitter and Facebook, I mean, they may make a living off of this, don't they? Right? To give everyone a loudspeaker so that they can tell the world whatever they think is righteous or whatever they think is wicked. And then there's fights all left and right. And that's the thing about us, right? We're created in the image of God. We all have morality. You cannot get away from it. The most rabid of atheists cannot get away from a kind of morality. 
Everybody is moral. Everybody has some affection for a righteousness or unrighteousness, for wickedness, and you can't get away from it. All of us love a kind of righteousness or a kind of wickedness. But the question is, do we love and hate as the king of glory does? It's hard, isn't it, to do this? I mean, just think about it. To live this way, it's hard. Uh, We are hit with a thousand messages a day. Just think about all the messages that were hit from social media, from TV, to movies, to friends, to schools, to friends, to pastors. All these messages. Telling us, believe this, don't believe that. Even oftentimes commanding you, you have to believe this. And I'm not just talking about pulpits. I'm talking about the other kinds of pulpits out in the world. Approve this, don't approve that. And there's threats attached to it, aren't there? If you don't, you'll lose your job. You'll be socially excluded. You'll be considered old-fashioned. You'll be canceled or some other derogatory term, whatever it is. And that's true, by the way, no matter what the issue is. I don't know what you're trying to get. You think I'm trying to say. This is true of every left, right, wherever side of the It's true of everybody. And so with the powerful moralism that is trying to bully us into their positions, we need to acknowledge that we are tempted, aren't we? We would be fools to say that we weren't. We are tempted to go along with whatever our tribe or whatever culture tells us that we should love or hate. Right? It's difficult. Nobody wants to be left out. I don't want to be left out, right? And it feels, and it kind of feels good when we see where everyone is wrong and where me and my tribe are right. We get a little kind of prideful and arrogant, don't we? So what do we do? How do we navigate these strange and perplexing times and come out on the side of Christ who perfectly loved righteousness and perfectly loved wickedness? How do we do this? Whatever the answer is, friends, these are going to be the answers to helping us not drift, to not neglect a salvation and find ourselves in 5, 10, 20, 30 years from now going, who am I? I'm nowhere close to the person I was. How do we do this? How do we, how do we run the race set in, uh, before us with endurance and not find ourselves 5, 10, 20 years from now hating God or believing some different gospel, serving some lesser covenant? I think Hebrews gives us five ways, five things to endure. And I'm going to go through these briefly. Hebrews teaches us five ways in which we can endure and we can love righteousness, hate wickedness. First one is this, to study all the words of Christ. Pretty obvious, but it bears mentioning. Go back to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. There it is. Look again. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So God's not silent. We don't have to try to figure out, gosh, what is righteousness? I don't know. No, we go here, right? This is the word of Christ. The word of Christ is here. We study all of this word, not just the parts we like, all of it. Start to finish. And in there, God reveals his righteousness to us. God speaks to us through Christ, Christ to us through his word. Uh, And so Hebrews tells us the word is truth. Or actually, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we've got to study all the word of Christ. We can't just sort of kind of pick it up whenever we please. And so just very practically, I mentioned previously, 2022, we're going to take the first part of the year to study the book of James. Let me go ahead and tell you, sometimes James is a little bit like eating peas and green beans. It's a tough book. It's going to be hard on us. So study that book. So study. So show up here every Sunday and try to get up underneath what James is teaching us. Second, community groups. We'll be working through the the book of James. Uh, The point of our community groups is not to rehearse the sermon. The point of the community groups is to rehearse the text, 
that the sermon is about. Study the text there in our community group. So Sundays we'll be giving ourselves to the Word. Uh, community groups will be giving ourselves to the Word. Third, first time I'm going to mention this publicly. So uh, starting the first Wednesday or the second Wednesday, you'll get an email about this. Uh, in January, I'm going to lead a Bible study on Wednesday nights from 6.15 to 7.30. We're going to stop... Sh- we're going to stop hard at 7.30. And guess what? I'm even going to feed you food. We're going to use this kitchen downstairs. I'm going to give you a meal from 6.15 to 7.45. Uh, 6.15 to 6.45. We'll eat together. And then I'm going to get up and we're just going to work through a book of the Bible. And we're going to have a hard stop at 7.30. Kids are going to come. There's no child care. Let them be loud. I don't care. I'm used to having kids run around and be loud. It's okay. And we're going to learn how to not just, this will be good for those of us. Maybe you've never studied the word before. So this will be a good model for you to ask questions to know how to study the Word. But secondly, it might just be a good place to just come to the truth. You need the truth. Uh, but also another way to do this is make sure uh, and to be reading the Bible yourself in your own times, in your own ways. By the way, don't you don't have to fall into the trap of reading the Bible in a year. I did that this year. I don't always do that. Sometimes maybe you just take the first three months of the year and you just master Romans 8. You study it, read it, think about it. Uh, another way of doing this would be to get get about two or three groups of two or three, and maybe you guys decide to read a book together, just talk about it, pray about it. But nevertheless, first way in which we're not going to drift is you can't just casually give yourself to the Word. You've got to study all the Word of Christ. Second thing that Hebrews says that we must give ourselves to if we're not going to drift, to second, and that is to see and savor your identity in Christ. See and savor your identity in Christ. Flipping over back towards Hebrews 10, looking at verse 14, it says that by, for by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfected for all time. Look at the, and look at the application, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not by anything of me, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, he's saying that since Christ has finished the work and you're in Christ, that's who you are, your evil, your conscience, your evil conscience, all the evil, all the sin, it's been cleansed. Your bodies washed clean. So therefore, any accusation that comes against you, either from your own minds, for instance, or from others that make accusations against you, whoever it is, clean in Christ. Clean. Counted clean. Purified. This is why Paul could say, to live is Christ and die is gain. You can kill me, you can keep me alive. Either way, I'm good. Right? This is one of the reasons people drift is because they put their identities up for sale. Don't they? We do this, right? We, we become insecure in ourselves, and so we kind of are willing to give up this or that so that we can be accepted in this group, whatever that group is. Instead of saying, no, I have my identity rooted in Christ. I can go into the heavenly places, the highest of courts, the God of the universe knows me, loves me, bought for me. He's preparing a place for me that where he is there I may be also. So therefore, I'm not tempted by anything, any slandering or, or anybody that might be trying to tempt me to bre- lead me into some other tribe, whatever it may be. I don't have to worry about those things. When I'm seeing and savoring my identity, trusting and treasuring Christ, well, then my identity is going to be secure and I'm going to be less tempted to fall some other lesser covenants. Third thing that Hebrews says that we can give ourselves to practically to try and not drift. Third, and that is to, you ready for this one? Shocker. 
Join a healthy church. Join a healthy gospel preaching church. Don't just show up to the church. Join the church. Become a member of the church. Serve the church and be served by the church. You say, Nathan, where's that in Hebrews? We'll take a look at Hebrews 10. And let us consider, this is verse 24, 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Then he goes on, not neglecting to meet together. That's what church is, assembly. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's something about coming and being part of the body, right? Assembling together, not forsaking the gathering of the church. Coming together under word, under songs, under prayers, under the Lord's Supper and the like that binds us together as a family, as a people, as the body of Christ. And then also Hebrews 13, 17. He goes, oh, this is, by the way, this is like some of the final words of Hebrews. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So in other words, come show up to church, be part of that church, attach yourself to that church and them to you, but also make sure that church has leaders that are not just people on screens preaching at you, but they're in your lives. They're overseeing you, shepherding you, caring for you, keeping you accountable to that faith so that when you're not around, they go, hey, hey, we've missed you. Where are you? How are you doing? You know, those kinds of things. Be part of churches that not just preach the truth, but have leaders that will lead in the truth. And members that will help in that process. That's what we need. Healthy churches. Join a healthy church. Fourth thing that we can do. To not drift practically. Uh, This is a little less practical. But still nevertheless Paul mentions this. And that is to hope in heaven. Hope in heaven. Hebrews 11. Right. Well known passage. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The convictions of things not seen. For by them the people of faith, people of old receive their commendation. Right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then y'all know that many of y'all know the rest of what he does. In Hebrews 11, he just goes on and talks about all these people from the Old Testament that were looking forward to a future hope that compelled them on into the, in the present. And so that's what we see, right? So for instance, we can slip over to Hebrews 12 too. This is exactly what Jesus did. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set where? Before him, he endured the cross, right? The joy set before him. He knew that in the heavenly heavens, when he sees down at the right hand, that's the thought that got him through the pain of the cross. So in the same way, the same has to be true for us. And you can, by the way, go this afternoon and read through Hebrews 11. All these people that were willing to suffer now in the present because of this future hope of glory. Hope in heaven. Guys, this is not our home. How many times? If just cursory understanding of the New Testament. Time and again, Christians are suffering. That's just normal. That's common, right? And Peter's going out of his way. We're exiles. They're saying we're citizens of heaven, not citizens of the earth. Paul says in Colossians 3, set your minds where? Not on things of the earth, but on heavenly things. Set your mind on things of heaven. That's how we're going to endure for the joy set before us. We are exiles, citizens of heaven. But finally, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's what we've been doing for these last two months, looking to Jesus. Going back to Hebrews 3.1, what does it say? It's a command, consider Jesus. We just read in Hebrews 12, 2, uh, the Jesus, looking at it, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who founded your faith? 
What new? It was Jesus. He found it. He's the author of it. And perfecter. Who's going to bring you to the end? Jesus. See, it's easy to think that when we kind of rehearse all this stuff, that the responsibility is on me to not drift. And at some level, that's true. But ultimately, it's the grace of Christ that will keep you to the end. It's what we sing all the time in this church, don't we? He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Right? It's the grace of God that bought you. It's the, grace, it's the grace of God that will bring you home to the end. And you see the grace of God in the person and the work of Christ. And so consider Jesus. Hope in Jesus. Treasure Jesus. Love Jesus day after day. As you study all of his word, as you see and save your identity, identity in him as you join a church of christ as it were that preaches models that gospel as you hope in the heavenly places where christ is look to christ that will be the thing that will help lead you home and not have you to drift well let me finish here going back to our passage hebrews 1 verse 9 you'll notice the passage has a therefore says there, and again in verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That's what we've been meditating on. Therefore, God, your God, it's referencing the Father of the Son, since Christ loved righteousness, since Christ hated wickedness, he lived it out, he atoned for it. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Once again, the, ref, the, the reference there is to the finished work of Christ on the cross. We've been thinking about that a lot. We thought about that way back in the appointed piece. We talked about that in the inherited piece. Verse 4, here it's the same thing. Meditating on because of the finished work of Christ, because he loved righteousness, hated wickedness, died for it, overcame it. The Father loves the Son. He gives him an oil of gladness, anoints them with oil of gladness. Atoning for the sins of the world, Christ is, a, is given the oil of gladness by the Father. So when you think about the Father, right, what do you think about? Well, here this passage would have us to think about the fact that the Father's really happy. He's a happy God. He has an oil of gladness. He, what does he think of his son? He gushes over his son. He loves his son. Because the son loves the same things the father loves, and the, and the father loves the same thing the son loves, and they worked it out, right? The, the son of David, he's giving them this oil of gladness. God is not an angry God, but a glad-hearted God. Beyond any of Jesus' companions, including angels, the father gushes over the character of the son. May we do the same. May we do the same. May we have that oil of gladness ourselves over the righteousness of Christ and things that which he hated. Again, the, the author says, going back to Hebrews 2, 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. And the way that we do that is by returning to the person, the work, and the eternal worth of the Son. His nature as God, His rule as eternal, and His character as loving righteousness and hating wickedness. As we give ourselves to studying all of his word, as we give ourselves to seeing and savoring our identities in him, as we give ourselves to joining healthy churches, as we give ourselves to hoping in heaven with him, as we give ourselves to just looking at him, to know him and enjoy him forever. And these are the things, guys, because life is hard, but these are the basic things that Hebrews is offering to us as a church to help us get home to heaven so that we don't drift to other places 
and neglect such a great salvation. What a good gift from God to give us such a beautiful book that has us to meditate on Jesus and is honest about the difficulties of drifting. So I hope this week and even the upcoming week will have you to uh, redouble those efforts, as it were, to look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, so that we won't drift and not neglect such a great salvation. Let's pray to him and give thanks to him. God, it's true. We must pay much closer attention lest we drift away because we do, God, I know I do, too many times a day. Thank you that you always bring me back. I pray, Father, that we as a church would be like that, that more churches around the world would be like this. They would be attentive to all the lesser narratives, all of the lesser covenants. And Lord, that they would have pastors that would preach the truth, model the truth, oversee the church. I pray that Christians would increasingly not give themselves to traditionalism, but instead they would be giving themselves to Jesus. Churches would increasingly look to Jesus as the author and perfecter of their faith. That we as a people would increasingly give ourselves to Christ and know that he's our joy. He's our hope. And for those, God, that are not giving their lives to Christ, maybe somebody here this morning needs to repent of sins, repent of loving wickedness and hating righteousness. And if that's them, Lord, may they come to Jesus this morning, find salvation and forgiveness author their salvation and perfect it to the end. Thank you for these meditations. God, we pray even now for our brother next week, David, that he would finish off our meditation in this book, that we would be a people in 2022 that would not drift, but instead would compel people to come in as we rise up preaching a better covenant. We pray this in the eternal, eternally begotten Son, the God-man, Christ the Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.